Samuel Pike and Samuel Hayward's Cases of Conscience first published in the year 1755. Case number four. How may a person judge whether a promise or threatening comes from God or is brought by Satan to the mind? Question you will find contained in the following letter, quote, Reverend Sir, I'm a person who has for some years been a professed follower of Jesus. I have had a place in his house, enjoyed great privileges, and have advantages above many, sitting under a sound, faithful, and tender minister. But under these means of fruitfulness, alas, I seem barren and unprofitable. I am afraid that I go backward in religion, and make advances in sin. And what is worse, my heart is so hard that I don't mourn over these declensions as I should. Therefore, I fear that I am not properly affected by them. No sooner does a temptation offer itself, than I fall in with it. So that I often think whether my refraining from gross immoralities is not more for lack of temptations than from a real hatred of them and a love for holiness. And yet I hope I sincerely strive and pray and resolve against sin in Christ's strength, being convinced that I have no strength sufficient of my own. But can I sincerely do this and fall so frequently? I attend on gospel ordinances, but I fear it is to little purpose, being cold and lifeless under all. I hear the love of Jesus sweetly displayed, but this icy, frozen heart is not melted. These languid and lifeless affections are not raised to nor fixed upon the divine Redeemer. I cannot call him my Redeemer, lest I deceive my own soul, and yet I dare not say that I have no part in him lest I be ungrateful and deny his work. Thus I am in a strait. But this I must say, that I desire to call the glorious Savior my Lord and my God. Another thing that appears discouraging is this. In an answer to a question some time since, you proved that Satan often produced passages of Scripture to terrify the trembling Christian. Now, this being the case, may he not transform himself into an angel of light bring promises to our minds and so deceive us. If so, how can a poor creature judge when a promise or a threatening comes from God or from Satan, especially when sometimes promises have seemed to be sweet, seasonable, and powerfully set home upon the soul, and afterwards awful threatenings have appeared to come with equal strength? I beg you, will take these things into your consideration. If you think them of sufficient importance, and may the eternal spirit whose work it is direct you to a suitable answer, that I may be capable of judging in some measure about my condition, whether I am a painted hypocrite or real, though I am sure that a poor unworthy believer, oh, that I could experience this made good to my soul, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Now God is faithful and the promise is absolute. They shall, and so on. Surely then, if I waited properly on the Lord, or was within the bond of the everlasting covenant, this would be my case. I think, if I am more lifeless at one time than another, it is at the Lord's Supper, so that I sometimes think I should sin less in neglecting than in attending in such an unbecoming frame as I almost constantly do. Oh, my hard, rebellious heart, obdurate and ungrateful creature, Surely if you could see my foulness, you would never judge favorably of my state, End quote. 
His case consists of a variety of particulars which it would not be well to pass over without notice. I would therefore first consider some of the particular circumstances mentioned here, and then secondly answer this important question. How may a person judge whether a promise or threatening comes from God or is brought by Satan to the soul? Let's take a few of the particular circumstances or complaints which this case consists of. These we find are various. Here is barrenness and unfruitfulness. Under the abundant means mentioned, here is coldness and lifelessness complained of. Here there is a fear of going backward, and yet a mind that is not suitably affected by it. This person particularly complains of deadness at the Lord's Supper, and of being carried away with temptations. These occasion a fear lest his abstaining from gross immoralities arises from a lack of temptations rather than from a hatred of sin, and a love of holiness. He is in a strait whether to conclude he has an interest in Christ or not. He is afraid that his frequent falls are inconsistent with an experience of the grace of God. And lastly, he is ready to conclude that he would sin less in neglecting the Lord's Supper than in attending New Ordinance because of his great coldness there. These are the various complaints a person makes, all of which are suitable to the experience of the Christian and therefore deserve consideration. Time indeed forbids our taking particular notice of everyone, yet I would not wholly neglect them, and therefore I'll make a few general observations which will refer to them all in some respect, and tend to direct, encourage, and strengthen the Christian under his various fears. Number 1. It is an unspeakable mercy when we have a deep and humbling sense of our own barrenness, deadness, and unprofitableness and to be unable to spread it before the Lord. Some persons are indeed mere cumberers of the ground. They bring forth no real fruit, and yet they are entirely unconcerned about it. They enjoy all the privileges of the gospel. They are favored with all the means of grace, and yet they are absolutely unaffected by the great concerns of eternity. They are strangers to all real religion. But notwithstanding all this, they think well of themselves, and say hypocrite-like, stand by yourself, and don't come near us, for we are holier than you. How awful to be in such a condition, but is this your case, my dear friend? You find a coldness and indifference under these means, and are afraid you are going backward rather than forward. You complain of hardness and insensibility, but remember, felt hardness is not real hardness. It is a blessing rather than a judgment, and therefore calls for thankfulness. It is a stupidity that is felt and lamented over, but not like the absolute stupidity of the impenitent sinner. Don't you carry your complaints to God and tell him of your coldness, your fears, your insensibility? Don't you appear humble in your own eyes on this account? Aren't you accusing yourself of your ingratitude and abhorring yourself for your vileness? This is no evidence of being a hypocrite, but rather of a real Christian. A hypocrite who abstained from outward immoralities thinks all is well with him, but the Christian appears vile and odious in his own eyes on account of the sinfulness of his heart. Though he has no public sins to charge himself with, yet 
When he looks within, he finds enough to make himself appear vile and despicable. It is a peculiar mercy to be made sensible of the plague, the wickedness, the coldness of our hearts, and to be deeply humbled for this. The Spirit of God always shows the Christian what he is, so that he may the more readily acquiesce in the method of salvation exhibited in the gospel. Be thankful, then, Christians, that your souls are not absolutely frozen and benumbed, but that you are sensible of, alarmed at, and humbled for your indifference and lukewarmness, barrenness, and unfruitfulness under the means of grace. Number two, it is good evidence of our being Christians indeed when we are not easy and contented under such a sense of our barrenness and coldness. But we find our hearts filled with desires for and enabled to endeavor after greater holiness. Are you satisfied with complaints? Or do you think it is enough to mention them? Do you willingly rest here? Do you find no self-abhorrence on account of these things? No desires for liveliness of soul? No concern to have things better with you? Don't you pray for, endeavor and strive after greater degrees and measures of grace? If you do not, you are asleep indeed, and it is high time to awake. It is an awful circumstance to be like the door on its hinges, and to have no desire for an alteration. Awful, to sit down, and feebly wish to be better, but cannot find a heart to pray and endeavor for a more spiritual frame and a growing conformity to God. This is sometimes pretty nearly the case with the Christian when he is under the power of any particular corruption. Sin is caused to great an insensibility in his soul, and all his spiritual powers appear asleep. This was the case with David when Nathan came to him. But is it thus with you, my Christian mourner? May I answer for you and say no? Are you satisfied to be in such a condition? Don't you desire and long to have it otherwise with you? Indeed, don't you pray and cry and strive to have all things altered with you? Are you contented with feeble wishes? Sometimes, my friend, you may appear to yourself to be in such a condition, but at other times aren't you full of holy concern about it? Don't you call upon your sleepy soul to awake? Don't you beg to feel the love of Christ melting your hard and stony heart? Before your duties, aren't you concerned to be kept from coldness and indifference? And at the close of your duties, aren't you humbled and ashamed under a view of your great imperfections? And don't you apply afresh to the blood of Christ for pardon? Isn't all this evidence of the Christian? Isn't there in all this a sense of the excellence of holiness, a real love for it, and therefore an evidence of a work of grace in the heart? Oh, bless God, that it is thus with you, that you can appeal to him, that you would have your soul filled with greater love for him and brought into a warmer and livelier frame. Number three, we should not make our fluctuating frames nor being led away by a particular temptation a mark of our being hypocrites. We are not to judge ourselves by one particular action in our lives or by an unbecoming spiritual frame which we may be led into through the power of temptation. But the general tendency of our desires frames in conversation, sometimes you find all dark within, cannot call Christ your Savior. Sometimes you find a sad numbness, 
Your soul seems like the earth in a winter frost, hard and incapable of impression. The love of a compassionate Savior does not melt you when you hear it. All this is consistent with the real experience of the grace of God. These different frames are not uncommon. What must we conclude from them? They only show us the difference between earth and heaven. Intimate a state of imperfection we are in. And a sad influence of sin even in a renewed heart. But they do not by any means give us reason to conclude that we are but almost Christians. The hypocrite is generally in one frame. But the Christian's frames are very fluctuating. His sky is not always clear. But just as the natural sky is sometimes serene and appears beautiful and pleasant, and other times is stormy, dark, and tempestuous, so is it with a Christian soul. Do not then draw any discouraging conclusion from your various frames. Let a consideration of it keep you humble, make you watchful, and fill you with warmer desires for the heavenly world, where your love will never grow cold nor your enjoyments meet with any interruption. But do not conclude from this that you are not Christians indeed. Number four, we should ever maintain a godly jealousy over our hearts. We should take care and guard against unbelief. We should ever rejoice with trembling. Upon every eruption of sin and interruption in our frames, we should take the alarm, inquire into the reason for it, and wash the heart with all diligence, knowing that it is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Yet, we are not to give way to disputes and unbelief, because our hearts are indeed treacherous. If we did so, we might always be under the power of distressing fears and never enjoy any satisfaction or peace, saying to ourselves, We may be deceived. There is a great difference between a godly jealousy and unbelief. If after self-examination our conscience does not condemn us, we have no reason to be uneasy. The person who submitted this case doesn't know what conclusion to draw concerning himself. He is afraid to say he is a Christian, for there are so many circumstances that appear discouraging. And yet, he would not deny what God has done for him. Don't hesitate between two opinions, if, so far as you know your own heart, you have been enabled to surrender yourself to Jesus Christ and receive him in all of his characters. If your conscience does not contradict you when you say you hope you love the Redeemer, you may and should draw a favorable conclusion concerning your state and wait for the clear testimony of the Spirit to make it plain to you. Do not, my friend, be always disputing. That can be of no service to your soul. It will break in upon your peace dishonor God, and perhaps provoke him to leave you in the dark. O oh, hope and trust, do not cast away your confidence, endeavor to live in a thankful frame, considering what God has done for you, and rejoice in the evidences of his distinguishing grace, and give God all the glory. Number five, we may be growing Christians and yet not find our affections always lively. If we judge our state and our progress in grace by our affections, we will be in danger either of running into all the wild reveries of enthusiasm or else of falling into despair. Affections may be raised and yet there be no grace. And on the other hand, we may have our affections dull 
or seem almost to be void of affections when compared with some persons, and yet we may not only have grace, but be growing in grace. Our affections may not be lively, and our souls all on fire, and yet we may really love Christ, and be making some progress in the divine life. Young Christians are often led by affection, therefore their hopes are ever fluctuating, if they're not lively, they conclude they're no better than hypocrites. Constitution makes a great difference as to the liveliness or dullness of our affections, and so does the present state of the body. These things should always be considered. Some can weep at pleasure, while others are incapable of shedding a tear. Some appear all alive, others of a heavier cast and yet are solid growing Christians and have a rich experience in divine things. It is doubtless pleasant and profitable, too, to have our affections raised by divine truths. When our chariot wheels move on swiftly, and the fire burns within us, it is sweet meditating, praying, reading, hearing, or conversing. Yet, we must not altogether judge the work of God in a soul by the liveliness of our affections. Indeed, when a person who is naturally of lively affection finds a growing coldness and indifference to spiritual duties, and is all alive when pursuing the things of the senses, it is a sad sign of at least a bad frame. But even if he doesn't find his soul lively in duty, if he is laboring after a greater deadness to the world, if he is secretly mourning after God and lamenting over sin, if he is pressing on towards a mark, and seeking after a greater conformity to Jesus. If he is more careful against sin and watchful over his own heart, then he is a growing Christian, even if, in waiting upon God, he may not find his affection so lively as he would. Tree not only grows in summer when it appears in all its gaiety, but even in winter, when it appears to the eye is dead. So the Christian in his winter season may grow in humility, in the knowledge of his own heart in love for Christ and holiness, though clouds and darkness around about him, and his countenance may wear an awful gloom. Number six, lifelessness and coldness and ordinances should not discourage us from waiting upon God in them. If we must leave off waiting upon God for this, then the ordinances must not be administered, because all Christians at times feel this coldness. We should be humbled for it, not discouraged. It is unpleasant to find a deadness in our spirits, but it should not cause us to stumble. We should search into the reasons for it. Perhaps you have taken no pains with yourself to get your soul into a warm frame before you came to ordinances. Don't be surprised, then, that the spirit was withdrawn. Perhaps you were not so concerned as you ought to be to keep a strict watch over your heart in ordinances. Or perhaps there is some sin you have been guilty of, which is not yet lamented over. God may, therefore, stand at a distance, and your souls be cold and lifeless. Inquire, therefore, into the reason of your coldness, and endeavor to get it removed. But don't be discouraged. This person particularly complains that if he is more lifeless at one time than another, it is at the Lord's Supper. Therefore, he imagines that he would sin less in neglecting it than in attending to it. This is no natural consequence. 
It may be your duty to attend the Lord's table, yet in some circumstances you may be out of the way by this duty. Perhaps you may have placed too much dependence on the ordinances, and thought that there you must always be comfortable and lively. God has therefore disappointed your expectations, so that you may be taught not to lay such a stress upon ordinances. Perhaps you depended too much upon your preparations, or else you have rushed too boldly upon the ordinance, or perhaps God may, for the trial of your faith and patience, withdraw a special presence from you, to humble you, and to lead you to greater dependence on Jesus Christ. If you desire to wait upon Christ with spiritual views, and in a spiritual frame, if you are watchful over your heart, and labor after a quickening view of the love of Jesus, in a true sense of the nature and design of the ordinance, then go on waiting upon him. In time, he may give you his comforting presence. Remember, you are not singular in your complaints, and you may receive real advantage from an ordinance, even though you may not be in so desirable a frame as you could wish. Having given you these few hints for your encouragement and direction, I now proceed to consider the particular question proposed here, Secondly, how may a person judge whether a promise or a threatening comes from God or is brought by Satan to the soul? The occasion of this question is as follows. This person found some of the promises of God's word brought with a peculiar sweetness and power upon his mind, and these were succeeded by awful threatenings which appear to come in with equal force. Now, it is of great importance to know whether these come from the Spirit of God, or from Satan, or which of these properly belong to us, and points out our state, whether the promise or the threatening. Thus, we may not deceive ourselves with false hopes on the one hand, and not give way to unbelief on the other. If we have encouragement to hope, Satan often transforms himself into an angel of light as well as appearing character of a roaring lion, and he makes use both of scripture promises and threatenings to carry on his purpose. It is thus a matter of importance to be able to distinguish when these come from Satan and when from God. I will therefore hint at two or three things which I hope will be sufficient to direct and guide us in this interesting affair. First, let us inquire how we may know whether a promise or any comfortable portion of scripture that is brought to our minds comes from God or from Satan. And to guide us in our determination of this, we should always consider the circumstances and state of our soul at the time when the promise comes to us and the immediate end and design, the tendency and influence it has upon us. We should consider the circumstances we are in when a promise or a comfortable portion of scripture comes to us for instance, are we living in the practice of known sins? Are we secretly or openly gratifying any particular lust? Are we living in the omission of evident appointed spiritual duties? If a promise comes to us in such circumstances to encourage us with the hopes of heaven, we have reason to question that it comes from God, because we cannot suppose he will manifest himself to any who are walking in evident disobedience to his commands. Is a Christian under the power of any particular corruption? Is he sleepy, dead, and careless? He has reason to question whether a comforting promise comes from God, 
if any such promise comes before his mind, unless he has been humbled for his backslidings, and has fled to the blood of Jesus for pardon. God has always chastises people and frowned upon them when running astray from him. Psalm 89, verses 30 to 33. Therefore David himself was sorely distressed after he had been guilty of adultery and murder. All antinomian principles and practices are justly detestable the sight of God, and so ought to be detestable in ours. Will God comfort a creature that is wallowing in all the mire of sin? No. If you are a lover of sin, you have no promise from God to support you. Whatever promise of that kind comes before you, it's brought by Satan who endeavors to entertain the hypocrite with the pleasing hopes of heaven, and so to lead him into a dangerous security. Examine then your circumstances. How is it with you? When the promise comes, has your case been represented as above? Then your circumstances are awful and melancholy indeed. But if your soul is in darkness, mourning and longing after an absent Lord, if you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, if you're seeking after a sense of the love of God, walking humbly with Him, and pressing towards greater degrees of holiness, or in this case, when any promise is brought to your mind with any degree of power, you may conclude that it comes from the Spirit of God. Footnote. I may here add one way by which we may know whether we have an interest in the promises we find in the Word of God. We may generally observe something in a promise that is descriptive of the persons who have an interest in it. Thus, that glorious promise in Isaiah 41 verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Yes, I'll uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. This promise is evidently made to those who fear God is not with them and are dismayed. Lest God should not be their God. Those then that are under these circumstances have an interest in this promise. Thus we may find something in most or other promises and comfortable passage of scripture to direct us whether we have an interest in them or not. Number two. We should inquire into the immediate end and tendency of a promise brought to us and its influence upon us. For example, if it lulls us to security and gives us any hopes of eternal life, even if we are careless and indolent, if it leads to presumption and encourages us to sin, and yet assures us of an interest in Jesus Christ, then we may look at it as coming from Satan who is willing to give us all possible encouragement provided it doesn't produce in us a hatred of sin and a love for holiness. But, if on the other hand, when the promise comes, it melts our hard heart and fills us with admiration for the love and rich distinguishing grace of God, if it not only scatters our fears and fills us with joy, but makes us humble, if it more endears a Savior to us, intends to bring us into a greater conformity to God. If in the end it leads us into a more evangelical frame, even that frame that honors God, and is suited to the scheme of salvation and the gospel, then we may conclude it comes from God, and not from the enemy. A promise, having such an influence upon the soul, answers all the ends for which it is revealed. 
Now we cannot suppose that Satan would bring a promise to answer these important purposes. This would be acting against himself and destroying his own kingdom. For the humbler we are, the more Christ is endeared to us, and the less is Satan's influence upon us. Thus, we have reason to conclude that the promise in these circumstances comes from God. Let us now consider threatenings and awful passages of Scripture. There are a variety of these in the Word of God, and they are designed for usefulness, yet they are often made use of to answer other purposes. So it is of importance to us to know when these come to us from the Spirit of God, or when, from the enemy. Now we may take the same method in judging these as we did in judging the promises, namely, considering the circumstances we are in. View the end and design of threatenings when they come, and then examine their influence on us. Thus, if threatenings or awful passages of Scripture come with a design to rob us of our spiritual comfort, to stagger our faith and bring us into despair, then we may conclude they come from Satan, and not from God. But if we are slothful and carnally secure, if we have been running into sin, omitting known spiritual duties, and are not yet awake, if the means that have been used have not been effectual to revive us, any threatenings or awful passages seem brought to our minds with a design to rouse us and to stir us up to greater diligence in our Christian course. If any end, they have this influence on us, and we may conclude they come from God. For these are the purposes they are designed to meet. We have a variety of passions to work upon, promises, enduring representations of the love of Christ, and so on, are designed to touch the finer springs of human nature and to move the softer passions, threatenings, and awful representations of hell and so on are designed to alarm us, to compel, and as it were, drive us. Thus God makes use of various arguments to begin and carry on his work in us. We should make use, then, of the more awful parts of Scripture, a view of them, should make us admire that grace which has plucked us like brands out of everlasting burnings, fill us with a godly jealousy over our heart, make us seriously inquire whether we are Christians indeed, and stir us up to press forward with growing cheerfulness toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. When threatenings appear to be brought with this view, and when they have this influence on us, they are used as means in the hands of God for our good. But when they forbid our hopes and draw us to despair, we may conclude there is a hand of Satan in it. On the whole, so far as threatenings promote our greater holiness and spiritual advantage, they are useful and fit their end. But so far as they weaken our hands, discourage our souls, and lead us from God, they are made use of by the enemy of souls for our spiritual hurt. Thus, you have had promises or threatenings or both come upon your mind. With any degree of force, inquire what circumstances you were in, what the direct tendency of these promises or threatenings was, and what influence they had on you. And from this you may in some measure determine whether they came from God or from the enemy. I will now conclude with one remark. How glorious is heaven! And how happy is a believer there? Here we are fluctuating between hope and fear. 
We often hang our harp upon the willows. Psalm 137 verse 2. We water our couch with tears and are exposed to the fury of the roaring lion. Oh, what a happy alteration when we reach the mansions above to find all sin perfectly destroyed and every fear scattered, no longer to know what is to be in darkness or what the least degree of coldness means. Oh, what a desirable state to be present with the Lord and to find his presence animating our souls with the noblest ardor in a service, to have the whole conduct of providence laid before us, and every mystery sweetly unraveled, to look back upon the many instances of divine wisdom and grace in our salvation, to find ourselves safely gotten over Jordan, and appearing in all the glory of the children of God, and triumphing as kings and priests. Blessed world! Hell, happy day when it will be thus with me. Come, you important period when the thirsty tabernacle shall be dissolved. He said, joyful moment when I all at once be delivered from all my sins and all my sorrows, when I will no longer stand in need of promises or threatenings, the one to comfort, the other to quicken me, having the glorious uninterrupted views of my exalted mediator and the sweetest, fullest manifestations of his love to keep the sacred fire ever burning in me, to fill me with joy unspeakable, and to engage my unwearied and everlasting praises. Thus, may we long and breathe for the heavenly state, and in God's own time make the glorious change. Amen.